You're listening to the Rubbish Trip Podcast. Two no-waste nomads talk trash with people in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In the eyes of the Rubbish Trip, Ty Nelson is one of New Zealand's unsung heroes. She's built her life around the principle of working on behalf of Papatuanuku, or the Earth, taking direct actions to heal the land and to be a voice for the whenua, the land, the nahiri, the forest, and the rako, the trees. She's also passionate about building connections between different communities in order to foster the collaboration we desperately need right now to heal our human and planetary ecosystems. Tyne is a multi-talented interdisciplinary human who weaves together a lot of different mahi or work. She's both a student and practitioner of rongoa Māori, commonly translated as Māori medicine and healing. Her mentor and teacher of rongoa is the legendary Robert McGowan, or Pa McGowan, who you're going to hear more about in this podcast. As a contractor, Tyne supports the Hawke's Bay Regional Council to deliver their predator-free Hawke's Bay program by working on Māori engagement and community research. She also supports Pa McGowan in his work for Ngā Whenua Rahui, a funding program that helps to protect biodiversity and remnant bush on Māori land while upholding Mātauranga Māori, Tikanga and Tinoranga Tiratanga. Finally, Tyne is the Hawke's Bay Regional Kaiārahi or leader for Parakore, a nationwide waste minimisation programme working to normalise zero waste across Māoridom. Parakore, which means zero waste in te reo Māori, supports marae, kohanga, kura and Māori organisations to work towards zero waste. So in this podcast, you're going to hear lots of Māori kupu or words, which we haven't translated on the spot because it would have disrupted the flow of the korero or conversation. So to help you out, we've created a little glossary on this podcast landing page so you can refer to that if you get stuck at any point. So we started off by asking Tyne no whiakwe or where are you from? From my mother's side, I'm Naitika Nanuki Tamatia, that's my grandmother, and my grandfather is a from Muriwa up north, so that's Ngāti Hine. And from my father, I'm Pākehā. He was born and raised in Waikukuro. I was born and raised in Waikukuro in Hawke's Bay. I left to go to Australia for, for several years and then I've come home to Hawke's Bay. You've developed such a strong connection with Papatūnuku and such a strong desire to work on her behalf. Can you explain or pinpoint where in your life this has come from? It came from when I was younger and I was quite introverted and quite shy and I was struggling particularly to make friends at school and so I would leave school and go to the beach or to the river or sometimes to the mountain snowboarding but mostly sitting by the river were probably my special moments it's the river that I grew up by and I remember just sitting and being there and watching the the water flowing over my hand and just having a, a quiet space or a quiet moment and then it was it felt like I was getting like little whispers in my ear of advice or guidance I guess and one of them was that life's you know we're supposed to be moving like the water and not stagnating and what happens when the water stagnates and stops moving sometimes it's moving fast and sometimes it's a lot more serene but if it stops then that's when negativity can live there and breathe there and grow there 
and just little gems like that that helped me to understand people so I felt a lot more at home in nature and less comfortable in a social space and I taught myself to be more comfortable with people and to work with people and to talk to people but I had to put conscious effort into it and a lot of coming to understand people was through that sort of engagement with the environment so it was something that was there all the time mm. and that's just helped me develop as a person in Te Māori we personify nature and for me that was always a very real thing not abstract at all and so when I was studying the human body as I was learning about it I would draw these connections all the time back to how Papatunuku cycles worked and how it mirrored how ours worked and yeah so it's just been something that's always there and that always helped that's helped me draw connections between people and the whenua. It feels like quite a healing relationship that you have with Papa Tūnuku, but Papa Tūnuku is sort of healing or supporting you. One of the things that you do is rungua Māori. Do you feel like that relationship of healing goes both ways in that work as well, in the sense that you might use rungua to heal, but sort of is there a reciprocal relationship with Papa Tūnuku in that conversation? Yeah, there is. To me, rungua and its fullness... A lot of people think of rungoi as translated to our sort of natural therapy modalities now, so herbal medicine or massage therapy or different things like this. And those are parts of it, but those are treatments that are a part of rungoi Māori from understanding the way that we connect to the natural world and being able to into this to the wider world, to the spiritual world, and being able to, from that understanding, provide treatments when people are out of balance or unwell, but that actually more is about how we live our day-to-day lives mm. and how we live a life where we're in living in balance and well. So not just about the treatment part, but the way of being. And, yeah, so with my learning with Rungwa, it's been a lot to do with Rako, with plants. So a lot of people would take that to be herbal medicine. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people are disappointed when I'm not, you know, making up a lot of concoctions and things like that. But it's Pa McGowan who teaches me, says it's like making friends. And so for me, when I do build relationships with people, I want it to be meaningful and a depth of connection there. And so the same with trees, you've got to take your time and get to know them and get to know what their gifts are and things like this. In forming those relationships with the Rako, and also going back to how Papa Tūnuku was there to support you, do you feel a sense of responsibility or obligation to protect Dōtarako and Papa Tūnuku in, within your rongoa practice? Definitely. Not just within my rongoa practice, just touching on my sense of what rongoa is, but in my day-to-day life as well. And what I feel is that we live kind of in two worlds at the moment, the natural world and the unnatural world, and that there's this real sense of, yeah, it's really bizarre. So we live, at the moment when we think of rungoa and the natural world, it's whanahiri and that sort of thing, but most of the time we're existing in this really unnatural mm. world. 
and yeah to me something's really amiss there that we're kind of living in a bit of a schizophrenic way it's like our cities and urban spaces are are these unnatural spaces but the natural world is still there like it's still around us to some extent and you know it might even just be the weeds growing through the cracks in the concrete kind of thing you know it's not like they're two separate worlds but they're like overlapping worlds that we maybe are aware of one of them or the other at the same time i don't know if that makes sense yeah no it does but i think too about like the way that we interact with nature sometimes like deep down that we know that we shouldn't really be primarily in this unnatural world and you know we'll do things like getting out into nature and Mm. this concept of recharging our batteries i always find that a hilarious concept in part because we don't have batteries but also because like this idea that you drive yourself to the ground in this unnatural space then you go out to nature and nature does this little service for you that makes you feel recharged so that you can go back into the space that is ultimately not good for you Mm. and in the process actually we're losing more and more of those natural spaces because the unnatural world is encroaching further and further and further it is i think um your question your your question was about my sense of responsibility to papatunaku yeah and part of that was like a conversation as well when i got back from australia and i was sitting by my river again and wondering what i should do with myself and going into one of those conversations with the trees and just really wanting to be of service in my family, particularly from my mum, is this desire to contribute to the community around you and not being satisfied with just doing work nine to five and labour for money, but that there has to be something else there. So I was looking for my way. What are my special skills and how can I contribute in my own unique way? Because I think that we all can. And I was sitting there and I was wondering what I could do and then just ended up having this conversation and coming to an agreement with the trees that they are amazing. They don't have arms and legs and the capacity to communicate, and I do. So I sort of made a vow to them that I would be their arms and legs and their voice, mm. and that's the work that I would do. And so any work that I do now, I am doing on behalf of the trees. That's kind of my thinking. That's so amazing. Hmm. So I work for Parakuri and Parakuri pays me and I work for the regional council and they might pay me, sometimes nothing or ahui. And for me, they're paying me, they're the entity that's paying me, but they're doing so on behalf of Papatuanuku because each of them consider themselves or state that they're working on behalf, on her behalf as well. So that's how it works for me. So part of my own healing journey is about me finding harmony and wellness through living in relationship, in a positive relationship with the natural world, which is a challenge in itself when we're living in a very unnatural system. And then the work that I do always is about helping other people to do the same. So to connect, find their connection, and it might not be through the same thing as me. So some people will connect with Papatunuku because they love outdoor adventures, um, adventure sports, and some, like my dad, would hunt. So not everyone's going to be into making white arco and tonics and things like this, but everyone will have something that will want to get them outside and that you can plant a seed there and then help nurture it so that they grow a love of papatunuku. 
So for me, yeah, it's about connecting people back to the whenua so that they can find their connection and bring of wellness because I can't give that to people, but I feel like that Papatunuku has this amazing capacity to love and share and give. There's studies now about how being in nature, you know, it's proven finally by science, being in nature, how that affects our, our wellness, but also connecting people. So I see my role as a connector to of people to whenua but also people with each other. And I feel like at the moment, I'm in lots of spaces and we've got a lot of our whanau Māori who are advocating for their hapu. And that has to happen. They're their representatives. But for me, working for Papa Tuanuku is not about you, them or us. For me, Papa Tuanuku needs us to sort it out, sort out all our, all our humanness and our divisions and start to find a way to cooperate and get beyond that. And so part of what I see myself doing is trying to help people to understand each other so that we can all get on with the business of collaborating because a lot of people, particularly in environmental spaces, talk about the need to collaborate. There's so much work to do but don't actually know how to do it. And for me, being growing up between Māori, Ricardo, and Pākehā, and always being in the middle in that situation, but in a lot of situations, and hearing both sides of the story, I feel like that's kind of one of my special gifts that I can help, is help people to understand each other when they have different ways of seeing the world. The challenge, I guess, is not just connecting with each other and developing that sense of collaboration for a common cause but also I was talking with a friend last night just how people may want to do that but they get really fatigued and overwhelmed with all of the challenges that we and Papatuanuku faces you know climate change and pollution and waste and even social injustice or even colonization all of these things and she called it compassion fatigue just wondered whether you had any thoughts on ways of not to rush aside but actually talking through and um, not letting those feelings be immobilizing and um, you know maybe how some of your perspectives might actually help us through that feeling yeah that's such a huge issue that's so real compassion fatigue I've never heard of it like that but yeah you hear of burnout people mm. burning out a lot and I had that when I first started working for Parakuri because you're focusing a lot on negative aspects of humanity, on the waste system and all the waste that we create. And often, yeah, it can be quite frustrating. And I remember feeling like I was being buried in the waste that people kept creating. Mm. And it was very disheartening. I also felt really alone. And that's the big part of it, I think, because Pa, who's been my main teacher in terms of rungwa, he also mentioned feeling alone a lot as he was learning. And so he worked really, really hard to con connect me up to a lot of people in Hawke's Bay and throughout the country as a response to him feeling that and not wanting me to feel so alone. And I also used to think that I needed to learn how to do everything, grow my own food, to kill my own meat if I was going to eat my own meat, to cook, to business, finance, everything. And I felt really stressed under the pressure of having to do all of that. And then I really realised actually that that's what community is about, that we don't all need to be able to do everything. We don't all need to have our own houses and go back and do everything for ourselves and cook for ourselves and shop for ourselves and drive to work on our own and all of this sort of thing. 
And some people do that and they don't love cooking, but they're, you know, they're doing that because they feel like they have to. It's about us finding what it is that we've got, what's our special gift, and putting ourselves in a position to do that and allowing other people to find theirs and us working together to have the full picture instead of us thinking that we're, we need to do everything on our own. So I think it can become overwhelming when you feel alone, but whatever you can do to remind yourself that you're not. Even I went to work at Nourish Vanille one day. Which is a food rescue organisation in, in Hawke's Bay. Yeah. So they do amazing work and they um, rescue and redistribute food. And at this time when I was feeling really bogged down by waste and focusing on how, you know, it's easy to think that people don't care enough or that they're just being lazy or putting barriers up. And then I went to work there and just filled my cup just that little bit mm. just to see people volunteering their time to do something good for people and for the environment. And that was enough to keep me going. So just remembering that you're not alone, trying to find or finding people, whether it's people that are around you or online that are working towards the same cause to remind yourself and just doing things to keep your cup full, whether it's stuff like that or going to the Nahiri or whatever that is. Yeah, you're not expected to save the whole planet on your own, but then we can all do our little bit. I kind of like that concept of trying to think we really do need to totally overhaul the way that we think about community. And I feel that our Māori has quite a lot to teach on that front because mm -hmm. there is a, a much deeper, richer awareness and connection with collectivism probably in Te Ao Māori. Definitely. And in terms of the environment, that doesn't exclude nature. You know, Pukapanaungatanga extends to our relationship to people. It focuses on connections rather than separation and includes our non-human brothers and sisters and Pukapanaungatanga and the whole spectrum is inclusive and focuses on connection instead of separation and isolation. My main mentor or teacher with Rungwa Māori is Pa McGowan or Robert McGowan. Some people know him as Pa Pata. He's based in Tauranga, but he learned his rungwa from the Wanganui River. So he went to train to be a Catholic priest at the Mission Winery, uh, Mission Estate before yeah, it was a winery <laughs> here when it was a mission. And he was training to be a Catholic priest and they all had to contribute somehow to the life there. And he was in charge of the fernery and also the bees. And then when he finished his training, he got sent to the Womanwe River to learn te reo. And so he went up there and he sat with the kuya while they were weaving. And at that time, a lot of the younger younger people, particularly the younger males, had left the area to go and work and generate an income elsewhere. And so these nannies needed someone to go and collect their plants for their weaving and for their medicine. And they knew that Pa had a good knowledge of plants and so started to ask him to go and collect for them and through that he started to build his knowledge in Rungwa and the Reo and started to get taught from there and then he got moved back to Hawke's Bay and then that was the beginning for him in that relationship to the whenua and to Te Ao Māori just grew and grew and grew 
and eventually he left the Catholic Church and started to work to keep the Matauranga Rungwa alive. And he was teaching at Waikato University, um, now works for Nafinua Rahui. So he's a botanist, excellent botanist. He's crazy about plants and well respected as a Rungwa practitioner. Quite controversial because he is a Pākehā who carries now a lot of this Matauranga. Yeah, so he he taught me and I found him after coming back from Australia and I had one of his quotes, which is, the role of the Rungwa plants is to heal the whenua and it's not until the land is well that the people can be well. And I had that on my wall, but I didn't know who he was. Mm. And then my mum said, oh, that that man, he comes down sometimes. And then I found out that he was doing courses up in Tauranga, so I went to a couple of them. And then because of his connections here, he was down in Hawke's Bay a lot, and when he would come down, he would get in touch. And I would just take every opportunity to go around and spend time with him. And that's how we started to learn. And for me, because I had this relationship with my ancestors and with the whenua, and I, and I remember feeling very alone, and that's what I said on the first day when I went to his course, that I needed someone that I recognise that my ancestors are there teaching me, but that I need someone on the ground to help me. And then I met Pa. I've been studying Rungwa Māori under Pa for about six years, maybe seven years. I feel like I started learning before he came to support me through ancestors and through Papatunuku and the whispers and things like that, and also through my Whakapapa line. I still very much feel like a student and have been reluctant to share and Pa would often say it's not about you becoming an expert and then teaching people mm. uh, it's about you just possibly know a little bit more than what other people do and you share what you know and then they can do what they want with that mm -hmm. so for me Rungwa practice is Rungwa study mm -hmm. at the same time so it's going out into nature it's getting to know Zirako making friends with Zirako getting familiar with them. I feel like every time I go out there, it's me getting to know a little bit more about a new friend. And at the same time, it's me exposing myself to them so they get to know me. And I feel like when you're in that space that they watching you and they can see you and they're getting to know you. And as you get closer and closer and closer, just like you would with a friend, when you first meet someone, you don't immediately share all of your gifts that you have or what's going on with you. You share your name and, and this sort of thing. And as you build trust and get to know each other, then you share more and more. So for me, it's about building a friendship with the Nahiri, getting to know the different plants and what their special gifts are, and then also just sharing myself and being there so they can get to know me, my intentions as well. Part of that is learning how to identify them, also going and taking some leaves and making a white arco and getting to taste them and feel the effect on my body or learning about what they do, what their role is in, in nature. Because even our water plants, they're not just there as medicine for us. They have medicine because their role is beyond what they can do for us. So Manuka, for instance, it's this amazing healing, you know, it's got the UMF and, and this. So it's, we now realize that it has an amazing, amazing health effects on us internally and externally. But Manuka was not put there to heal us. Manuka was put there to heal the, the wound on the whenua. So when there's no cover and it's bare soil, the Manuka seed flies in the wind. It's really light and it lands on you. 
and then it will be the first sort of band-aid over the land. And so that's why manuka has a special characteristic. But it's not for us, mm. it's for the whenua. But because we're watching and because we're in close relationship, we can see what its qualities are and we can utilise that for ourselves and our, our own well-being. Mm. But it's not just for us and keeping that in mind with all of our plants so you can watch and see some plants that we use in Rungwa are really good for treating fungal infections for instance and their place in the environment is often in really wet areas where they have developed these characteristics to fight off fungi because they live in really damp places so they have to adapt and then we see that and we can utilize it but it's not just there for us. So you talk about how a lot of these Sirako, they have all these healing properties, but that doesn't mean that they've necessarily been put there for us. So an awareness of mm. that, that also link into kind of not taking more than you need or not taking things just carelessly, like the tikanga around taking. <laughs> yeah. And when I work with kids, it's the same thing. So when I work with kids and we were going to go into the bush and we talk about how we're not going into a museum, mm. so things aren't dead and precious, you know. The mm. Nahiri is alive, that it wants to be touched mm. and is happy for them to be there, that there's some plants that you can see just like people mm. that aren't necessarily comfortable with hugs. And mm. we talk about the onga-onga, the, the stingy nettle, or some mm. ones that might not apply to, mm. that they have a different role. But that in general, <laughs> yeah, that they should be there. And then we, I will talk to them, for instance, about, say, a boy's wearing a hat. And I'll go up to him and I'll say, hey, or I'll just take his hat off him. And then we'll ask him how he felt about that. Mm. And generally the response is that I'm not happy about it, mm. that it's my hat, mm. that you did in the house, <laughs> you know, this sort of thing. Yeah. And then we talk, so I'll give it back. And then I'll go up to him and I'll say, hey, you know, like, that's a really nice hat. Do you think that I could try it on? Mm. And then he will say either, yeah, you can you can try it on for a bit of time or, you know, take it. Mm. Or maybe he won't. And so what's the process there that we ask and that we wait and also listen and that maybe the answer will be yes and that that person or that rako can spare what we're asking for or it may be no. And so we have to at first ask and then listen and then respect what we're told. And so for me, it's the same sort of process with Rako. And that, that's a really good way. That whole personifying um, for people really helps people to understand. As part of that understanding and, and developing the connections and relationships is also about learning the history of how things are the way they are now and maybe how that things have changed, how the ngahere has changed and ecosystems have changed. It seems to me like that understanding maybe what was here at one time in the past is not what's here now or whether the, this place we're in is in a state of recovery or uh, whether there are things missing that were thriving in the past. Is learning those sort of historical changes part of that the developing relationships with the Ngahere, with the Rako and understanding how to have those conversations? So that's definitely been part of my process in my building relationship with the Nahiri. 
in terms of a lot of the kids or a lot of people that I work with, it's not quite there yet. What you get is a lot of people who go to the Nahiri because it's, particularly in Hawke's Bay, it's so far to get there and there's such small remnants that exist. And it feels so good compared to being in the city that people go there and they see that it's green and they feel the oxygen and the modi of the place and think that it's well. They don't know it well enough to recognise that actually it might, might be ailing. And I think that will come later on when you start to spend enough time there, just using the same analogy with people. I could meet someone and they seem quite happy and we get along really well and we've just gotten to know each other. And for me, I think they're fine. But then their spouse might come up and might see past that and might know them well enough to know that something's amiss that other people might not catch. So it's the same thing. So, so a lot of people go to the Nahiri and see the green and feel a lot better and haven't learned to listen or, or learned to see past that yet. And that's fine. But once you start to get to know these places a lot more, you get to see that maybe there's no ground cover or maybe while there's some really, really old remnant trees that there's not a lot coming up after that, succeeding that, or that, that there might be gaps in the canopy or that the soil might be really, really dry when it should be really damp or that this year there's certain plants that are not coming up or that possums are in there and these sorts of things. So for me, that's definitely, as I've been spending a lot more time, that's something that I notice and I'm working on. But yeah, in Hawke's Bay, it's really different just because it's been hugely modified and a lot of us don't realise that. When I first came back eight years ago, I used to um, travel the same road from Central Hawke's Bay to Hastings and it's all cleared, beautiful hills. And I used to love that drive and I didn't realise that actually it used to be wetlands and that there used to be a lot of trees there. So it's been modified for so long that a lot of us don't really know that it's supposed to look a lot different. And do you see this pattern repeating across the country as well, that the Nahiri may not be as well as it could be or that the land has been modified? I think it's the case everywhere. I spend most of my time in Hawke's Bay. So when I do travel, there are some larger remnants and larger Nahiri that have been preserved. So there are some that are in a better state of health or that are being really, really looked after. Here, we still have people that are looking after them, but they're quite small and there's a disconnection between each of them. Mm. And so it's really hard for them to recover. And so in other areas, they've got bigger, you know, in the Uriwetas and Kuriora, they've got a lot more of the old forest. Yeah, but in general, New Zealand has been highly, highly modified and it was, that happened really, really quickly too. So yeah, it is the case around the country and from people that I know too who travel around quite a bit who notice that there are plants that are disappearing in certain places and biodiversity that's disappearing in certain places. Those people who have a close enough relationship to notice things that are missing from the landscape, particularly the things that are smaller mm. and less well-known. Yeah, because it's interesting. You know, I think there's, a, for example, there's a lot of emphasis on tree planting at the moment and riparian planting and along waterways and, and just general tree planting. 
And I think people can maybe rally around something like planting Cody or so on, but maybe are not fully engaged with the fact that forests are multi-layered and it's mm. not just big Draco. There's also like ground cover and, you know, mid-level stuff and all of that is needed for a healthy Nahiri. Yeah, I think it's the same with people. Again, the analogy. Mm. But, you know, often it's the loudest or the most showy people who get the attention. But there's a whakatauki and it escapes me in Tereo, but it talks about the tōtara, or Pa talks about the tōtara, that it actually those big trees in the Nahiri can't come into being if they don't have the smaller ones that are less loud and less well-known to create the environment for it to grow up to become the rangatira. And so it's the same with our communities, with everybody, that we often see the tōtara or the, the kauri, the people that are standing up, but who are the people around them that are enabling them and looking after them and nurturing them. And so it's like looking for the special gifts in people and everyone that you see, and the same with the plants. And they might not be obvious, they might not be immediately beautiful or have an amazing perfume. It may not be that they're healing, it may be that they're protectors. So everybody has a role, just like every plant and every species in the ecosystem has a role. So just remembering that with people and with plants and looking, starting to look at the little ones and the ones that don't get the attention and seeing what their gifts are. I feel like we should also ask about waste, about para, <laughs> <laughs> and how, in a sense, you could see rongoa and para as kinds of worlds apart. Do you see it that way? Not at all. I think that's unique to me. I remember having lots of conversations with Pa who teaches me Rungwara and Parakuri was taking up a lot of my time. And I was saying, it's, it is, it's just, it's Rungwara, it's just the same. I'm mm. learning just the same. And it was, mm. so it's harder for, for other people to see the connection, I think. But Toitu Timurai o Tane, Toitu Timurai o Tangaroa, Toitu Te Tangata. So the health of the people is reflected in the health of the land and the health of the ocean. And I literally see it the way that I have a relationship with Papatunuku, that I see the landfill as us feeding Papatunuku kai that she can't digest. And so we're putting it literally into her puku and creating tumours. And whereas the materials at one point in time may have come from her, they have no way she can't recognise them and can't digest them and they make her sick and I feel like a lot of the time the packaging and the things that we feed to her are things that we're also feeding to ourselves and that that's reflected in what happens in our system that our body doesn't recognize a lot of the stuff that we put in there anymore and doesn't know how to process them and they accumulate in our body just like our waste is doing to Papatunuku. And composting and feeding kai back to the whenua for me that's us keeping her well, that's good digestion, that's understanding how her body works and processes and cleanses material. And a lot of the stuff that we compost then is the scraps from kai that if we eat that our body recognises and can break down and digest and keep us well. So for me, there's a correlation there between human health and papatunuku and her health. That's a really simple way of looking at it, but yeah. You know, when you're talking about as how we live our lives, not just making tonics mm. and so on, and that often 
the way that we may go about reducing our waste involves lifestyle changes that are better for us, improve our well-being, and also may probably improve our connection with Papa Tūnuku as well, mm. um, particularly around like the kai that we may choose to eat or have to eat if we're preparing from scratch rather than getting stuff out of packets and so on. So, yeah, the, the approach of reducing waste could also arguably be seen as improving our well-being yeah. while improving the well-being of Papa Tūnuku or not actively harming her in the way that we have been. Yeah, in the waste world, we're trying to help people move up the waste hierarchy. And for me, too, I started doing waste at events. And so we'd have the red landfill bin, the recycling bin and the compost bin. And I would see it as we're moving, trying to move people. So, you know, we've gone from this point of just having the red landfill bin and trying to get people to move across. So recycling, but then ultimately to composting, we're really returning in a positive way what we don't need back to Papatunuku. And I feel like as people start to do that, just by looking at their waste, that the landfill system and putting things in there enables and supports a life of convenience, a life of rushing, a life of not having time for each other, of not thinking about where things come from or where they're going after we use them. So a consumerist and egocentric way of living and as you start to just go through the simple motions of starting to recycle starting to consider what things are made out of and where they're going to go afterwards and putting them in there and then trying to avoid things going to the landfill and replace them with things that they can be composted in order to continue moving up the waste hierarchy or to composting a lot more you have to connect a lot more to people you need community you need to slow down and you need to consider where things are coming from and where they're going yeah so i i see parakuria as like a really awesome tool that people don't know they think that they're just working with their waste but actually it's the instigator for a, a whole lot more that's going to help their lives be fuller more connected and healthier so that also helps keep me going when I'm feeling like you know frustrated with parakore <laughs> and that the the waste of the world is on my shoulders yeah for me parakore is a lot bigger than just waste yeah and I try and share that because if it's just your waste, a lot of people don't find that very inspiring or exciting. <laughs> and they just think, ugh. But if you can convey that it's about more than that. And with Māori, it really works. It really hits home when it's when it's about being resourceful and it's about connecting to the environment and really taking ownership over the way that you live and having integrity in the way that we do things. Being resourceful once again because Māori are a really resourceful people that find themselves in this Western picture. Mm. I really love that you said feeling like the waste of the world is on your shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good way of spinning it. But, you know, I wanted to also mention, I've spoken with people about this tension before, particularly people who are working in, with Taonga Puoro, about this tension of really wanting to share and spread the kaupapa of Taonga Puoro as far and wide as possible and, like, trying to just let people know about it, normalise it in mainstream society, I guess. 
and seeing that sometimes using synthetic materials and modern techniques is a much more efficient way of doing that, but mm -hmm. might end up producing more waste than if they were just using purely uh, natural materials and traditional techniques that are slower and yeah, more of a process. And yeah. yeah, do you have any thoughts about, you know, like balancing up those priorities, I guess? Yeah, it's such a good thing to, for you to bring up, Liam, and it's so appropriate. Our experience recently with that has been building waka with some of our friends here. So we're building nine waka taurua. And we had, Aroha Mai, I forget his name, but we had this traditional waka builder come down from, from up north who had been building with Heck Busby. And his, his kōrero was just touching on the same thing. So he learnt traditional waka building, but then existing in this time, because the waka that we're building, we're using a lot of resin and things like this that aren't really great for the environment. But we do have one of our friends who are building with stone tools from a tōtara hull and doing it the old way. Mm. And... What this man said was that it's really, really satisfying building in the old way and not creating all of this waste that he recognised and he felt that. But at the same time, there is this way of doing things. You can expose a lot more people to the kaupapa and give people a lot more opportunities than they may have had because we can build a lot more and make them available to people. So it's definitely a tension. And I haven't come to a, a resolve yet, not enough to say that one way is better than the other. But one thing that I do think from the old way of teaching is that, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say one way over the other because everybody that's involved in doing this is coming from a really good place of really caring about whatever the kaupapa is, tonga, puoru, and the responsibility of keeping it alive. The same with the waka building. Mm. That's a really tricky question to answer, you know, without being critical of people, well-intentioned people. I don't, mm. Yeah. And the thing that I find really interesting about um, those tensions is that people are really generally very aware of mm -hmm. the potential damage that they are on the side, you know, and they're not intentionally creating the damage, but it's just the side effects of the materials they're using or whatever. But they're usually very, very aware of that and don't necessarily feel good about it. Yeah. Um, maybe part of that is like going back to your thing of it's not up to every individual to try to do everything, but maybe as a community at the moment, we're kind of just stuck with the materials and the processes that are available to us. But mm -hmm. maybe as a community and once we build those community connections that we can find better ways of promoting the kaupapa and sharing it in ways that don't harm papatuanuku. Yeah, it's just this huge tension of walking in two worlds, the natural one and the unnatural one, and trying to reconnect with the old world for us as Māori, but living in, a, in the new world as well. Yeah, and I agree, as long as we're having those conversations is really important and always looking to improve. We have the same thing with Rungwa Māori, actually. There's a lot of people who might join the plant material with synthetic materials. And I think everyone's just on their own process of connecting back with nature. Potentially, this is a tension that might be particularly more pronounced in this Indigenous context mm. because 
in the Western world, we also have old ways of doing things, but the progress towards synthetic potentially has happened much more gradually and without that kind of sudden colonization that, you know, when you go back to revitalize a practice, you might be going from that period of when that, these things suddenly were not stopped, but made much more difficult. And it's much more obvious that you're broaching these two worlds, perhaps. Yeah, I think there's a few things like from the old ways that not everybody was meant to, you know, so so with a lot of practices, a lot of people are interested in Rungwa, a lot of people are interested in Tonga, Kōro, in Waka. We're all born with our own set of skill sets mm -hmm. and it's different to the Western understanding of knowledge where you want to learn something and you might pay some money or, you know, you feel like you have the right to learn whatever that, that skill set is. Whereas in Te Ao Māori, there was a lot of knowledge that was general when it came to what you needed to live and to survive. But specific people were sort of shoulder tapped in a way, whether it was your lineage or certain aptitudes that you had towards what that skill was. And then the tohunga would invest in you and share that knowledge in depth with you. So that's one thing to keep in mind too, that you know, a lot of the reasons why we use these materials is because we're time-bound or bound by keeping costs low and wanting to get exposure to a lot of people. And it's not necessarily about how many people get exposed to it because a lot of people can learn Tangapuru or Rungwa Māori aspects, but not everyone is as committed to it as they need to be to learn whatever that matauranga is in its fullness. And so if we just slow down and we sort of think of it like that, that community sense that we're not all going to be able to do everything, that we all have specialties and that there's certain people who will do these things instead of trying to get everybody to know it a little bit. I think that's something from the old days that could be applied here, perhaps. I really want to thank you for sharing so much Ricardo with us that's so beautiful and so deep. Yeah, thank you, Tyne. It was a really fascinating and insightful quarter all. Yeah, thanks you too for all the work that you do.